Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. I'm here today with Simon Tilford, who's the Deputy Director at the Center for European Reform, and with John Springford, the Director of Research here at the CER. They both have agreed to sit down and talk me through the recent changes in the value of sterling and what that really means for the British economy. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So since the Brexit referendum in June, the sterling has fallen around 20%. And judging from much of the newspaper coverage here in the UK, that seems to be a great thing because the fall in the value of the pound will lead to a boost in British experts. And that makes sense, right? That foreign demand would rise, John? In the kind of textbook or economics 101 idea about the relationship between the exchange rate and exports and imports, if you have a depreciation of your currency, then you should see exports rise and imports fall, and that should help you to rebalance from some kind of shock. There's been a fair amount of commentary about this, um, and we thought it would be quite helpful, and we might add something new to just look at some of the, or two, in fact, of the past sterling devaluations. So we looked at 1992, after Britain uh, crashed out of the exchange rate mechanism, the precursor to the euro, and then after 2008, after the financial crisis, we looked at that as well. The response was quite different. In 1992, you had a bit more of a a textbook response. Um, Exports grew and imports shrank and the economy rebalanced a bit towards external demand and Mm. you got a bit of growth out of that. But the period between 1997 and 2007, we saw sterling appreciate the balance of trade get quite a lot worse, more adverse in the UK. And the uh, depreciation that we saw after 2008 didn't really do much to make that situation better. Um, In fact, the trade balance remained um, in deficit and in a similar size deficit to what it was in 2007 before the shock happened. What was different then between 2007 and 1992? There are, I think, three explanations for why 2009-10 was different to after 1992. The first one was that the devaluation in 1992 was in a period of fairly strong global growth. Um, So that meant that there was a fair amount of demand for British exports. And that wasn't true um, immediately after the financial crisis, because our biggest trade partner, the EU, was in its own crisis with Mm. the Eurozone with the Eurozone crisis. So that meant that we didn't see uh, a big pickup in exports, despite the fact that British exports have got quite a lot more competitive. The second reason is that there has been a shift in the composition of British exports towards services over the 1990s and 2000s. And services exports tend to be much less uh, price elastic in the jargon, (laughs) i.e. if there is a a fall in the pound, um, you don't necessarily see a big pickup in demand for services exports. So people are willing to pay more for services, so they just don't care as much? What's the reasoning behind that? The reasoning is because um, services tend to be highly specialised. If you think about you know, financial services, a bank based in Britain is offering a German manufacturer um, some trade credit to help it do some business with China. Um, and if that bank's really the only place that can do it in mm-hmm. Europe, then the German manufacturer is going to use that bank even if the price has gone up. That's why why services tend to be uh, a bit less responsive to movements in the pound. The final reason is the development of the single market has made the British exporting sector in general less sensitive to changes in uh, the exchange rate. And that's because essentially we've seen the development of these big supply chains where 
a British bank is providing financial services to a German manufacturer who's selling the final exports to the US. And if you have these, these supply chains with fairly long contracts, with very high degrees of specialisation in particular countries, um, then it means that you don't get the same, same kinds of shifts, quick expansion of exports that you might get in a more simple economy where there aren't so many uh, interconnections. So I think those three reasons are, are, are why we're unlikely to see um, a big pickup in exports from sterling's devaluation, but Simon can tell you more about that. Before we go to Simon, mm -hmm. you've listed two precedents now, mm -hmm. but talking about 2016, mm -hmm. the Eurozone, is it more in the state that it was in 1992 or is it more in the state that it was in, in 2007? What's the comparison? Well, the Eurozone is certainly doing, doing better than it was immediately after the financial crisis. And the Eurozone crisis really got going in 2010. So in that sense, you know, the Eurozone is a bit more, more like the 1990s, I guess, in the uh -huh. sense that it's growing at least, although it's not growing very quickly. And so that should help demand for British exports. But there are two other things which are working in the opposite direction. One is that uh, since the financial crisis, services have grown as a proportion of total exports for the UK and as services are less sensitive to exchange rate movements, that should be a bit of a downer for British <laughs> exports. And the third reason is that global trade growth since the financial crisis has been pretty weak. Before the crisis, it was growing quite a lot faster than overall economic growth as globalization happened and as economies integrated. But since trade has been growing at about the same rate as economic growth, so there's just less demand for British exports out there. So the Eurozone is doing better, but global growth is not. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's more likely to be like the financial crisis, post-financial crisis period than the 1990s. Simon, assuming that you agree with what John has just said, what do you think then will be the impact on the British economy of the fall of the sterling? Well, I think the most immediate impact is going to be the push-up inflation. And what that's likely to do is to reverse the very sort of nascent recovery in real incomes we've seen in the UK since 2014. Many people forget that it's the British, um, rather than the Italians or the Spanish, for example, who have suffered a huge fall in real incomes since the financial crisis. So real income, so people's wages adjusted for changes in, in inflation, have fallen further in the UK than in any other countries in the EU bar Greece and the Baltic states. Or at least they fell by more between 2008 and 2014. They then staged a little recovery last year. Finally, wage growth exceeded the rate of inflation. But what's likely to happen now is that inflation is going to pick up, the economy is going to be weak, so wage bargainers are not going to have much leverage to demand higher wages and hence we'll see renewed declines in real incomes. Now, with the pound where it is now, so about 110 on the, the euro and about 120 on the dollar, that will push up inflation by probably between two, two and three percentage points. Do you agree, John? Yeah, I think probably. that's about right. Now, that's probably not going to be enough to force the Bank of England to raise interest rates, because the Bank of England has indicated uh, that it, it thinks that pickup in inflation will be temporary. That it won't pass, that it won't feed through into higher inflation because wage bargainers are not going to have any leverage, they won't get higher wages, which won't push up inflation. So it'll be a one off mm. boost to inflation, but it'll just lead to lower living standards. But they think it'll pass through the system so they won't have to raise interest rates. But you disagree? Uh, I think that's probably right at this exchange rate. Uh, where the pound is now, I think the Bank of England will not raise rates and that government borrowing costs 
uh, won't rise that much. We've seen a bit of a sell-off of, of UK government debt in recent weeks, but not enough to cause real concerns. Boeing, Boeing, I think, is going to remain pretty cheap. However, if the pound falls further, I think things look rather different. And it could fall further, given uh, that it's only been a couple of weeks since investors uh, really took on board the fact that the UK is almost certainly heading for a hard Brexit. And it's not far from where we are now to parity on the euro. So that would be another 10% fall on the euro. If that were to happen, then inflation would rise sharply in the UK. You have a bigger fall in living standards, so a bigger hit to the economy. Uh, and you would see uh, probably interest rate rises by the Bank of England, because if it fell by that much more, um, irrespective of the weakness of bargaining power, you would see you'd see real risks of a pick-up inflation in the UK, and they'll probably raise rates. That would hit economic growth. So you'd have a hit from falling real incomes and a hit from higher borrowing costs. You'd also see a bigger sell-off of gilts, uh, which would make it harder for the British government to provide fiscal stimulus. The nuclear outcome, though, is if it falls to parity on the dollar which would be another 20% fall from where we are now. Now, no one thinks, well, some, some people in the markets think that's possible. The pound has been close to parity on the dollar before in the early 1980s, so this, it, has, it has happened. What would that do? Well, yeah, you'd have a big inflation problem because that would imply under parity against the euro. Uh, and yes, the Bank of England would have to raise rates very sharply. Uh, we would have probably, uh, that would constitute a full sterling crisis, big inflation problem, big sell-off of UK gilts and austerity. So you would then have a big demand problem in the UK. And as we've discussed, exports are not going to be the saviour that many of the Brexiteers believe them to be. Clearly, if the pound fall by that amount, yes, they would be very competitive. But there are quite a few reasons why demand for these very quite competitive exports would be lower than, than, than many of the, the Brexiteers argue. Okay, well, you've mentioned hard Brexit and the reaction of the investors uh, to that announcement by the government or de facto announcement by the government. And I want to ask you to unpack that a little bit because you've written in the past about the impact of the general uncertainty around the Brexit vote on the economy. One reason why um, British exports to the rest of Europe are unlikely to be that responsive to a weaker sterling is that um, lots of firms will need to invest in additional capacity to meet that demand. So if a firm has existing capacity in the UK, which it can use in order to boost exports to the EU, then yes, it will do that. But oftentimes firms need to actually invest in order to service that demand. And the problem Britain is going to have is that few firms will choose to invest in capacity to serve the EU market when they don't know what kind of access they're going to have to that EU market. Now that's going to be a particular problem for uh, exporters of services. A financial services firm or a legal firm uh, is unlikely to boost its presence in the UK to serve the EU market if it's not sure if it's even going to have access to the EU market mm. uh, to sell those kinds uh, of services two, three years down the road. Goods exports, yes, I think th there is a greater likelihood uh, that goods exporters might just take a punt. They might just assume they're still going to have unimpeded access to the EU single market because they're going to think even if it's a hard Brexit, we're still going to have free trading goods. And they might think, well, we'll just take the risk. But even there, you know, if we're outside the customs union, manufacturing in the UK for export into the EU is going to be more expensive and more cumbersome than, than say, manufacturing in Spain for export to the rest of the EU. So even in that area, we might see investment demand being very slow, uh, we might see investment being very slow to pick up in response to this big uh, competitiveness. Boost. Finally, I wanted to ask you about the impact on politics that this will have. Um, we've had 
an FT headline which I thought was great and they quoted David Bloom as saying that Sterling is now the de facto official opposition to UK government. Do you think that's true? And if that's true, how powerful do you think that this opposition is really in terms of influencing government policy? I mean, he meant it as a glib kind of throwaway remark, but there's some truth to it. I mean, what's very striking about the UK is that the Conservatives, despite having presided over what many people see and much of the half the country sees as a pretty disastrous step, are hugely ahead in the polls. The really odd thing about UK politics at the moment is that um, despite the, the enormity of what's happened and despite the, um, the, the huge uncertainties facing the country, there is no effective political opposition. Labour is now further behind the Conservatives than it was before the, the referendum vote, which means that the government's under very little pressure. Uh, they can, I think, rightly assume that they can sustain the economic and political fallout from a half Brexit and still win the next general election. So I think there is, he's on to something. Uh, there is no strong opposition keeping the government in check and forcing the government to justify what it's doing. Things have got a bit better in recent weeks with the appointment of one or two uh, serious figures by Labour, such as uh, Keir Starmer. But as a whole, uh, the government can pretty much assume that it, 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 it's going to govern with an extremely weak opposition. So I think he's right to say that uh, the currency markets and the investors are actually a bigger check on, on the freedom uh, of the Conservative government uh, than Labour at this juncture. And I think that's going to remain so for the foreseeable future. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I'll just conclude by saying one thing, which is most of the opposition within Labour, and in fact from the Conservative Party, has been focused on processology. It hasn't really been focused on trying to keep uh, the UK in the single market uh, because both Conservative and Labour MPs just feel that it's impossible to shift public opinion in the UK about the free movement of people. And unless they try to do that, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the UK to, to stay in. Um, and that's another reason why essentially the currency markets who don't care about free movement of people, they just care about the future part of economic growth in the UK. That's why the currency markets are acting in, uh, as the de facto opposition. Well, thank you very much, Simon and John, for that. And thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, do subscribe for regular updates and also give us a rating on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London. <laughs>